Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you are heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Thank you, Marla. Good morning, family. We are in the book of Colossians. And um, we're going to have, there it is, right there for the second week. So let's, um, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to worship you and to celebrate your goodness in our lives. Father, thank you for this letter Paul wrote to the Colossians. Father, we just ask that you might um, speak to our hearts this morning, that these would not be my words, Father, but these are your words. So open our hearts to receive them and that we might love you more and serve you better. And we just thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, willingly went to the cross to die for each one of us. And if there are any here that don't realize the magnitude of that sacrifice, may this day be the day that they realize the Savior loved them so. So bless our time, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, as we started last week, if you remember... Um, Paul never was in Colossae, and that was a, you know, we characterized it as a kind of a backwater community. It had been a real prominent community at one time, but then the road system changed, and it sort of lost its prominence. And so, you know, you can kind of think of Colossae as maybe like Millville or something like that, just not a lot going on. And yet, and yet, as we looked at that, it was because of this man, Epaphras, that loved those people enough that he journeyed to Rome to share some concern with Paul. And because he did that, 
Paul wrote a letter that's been handed down through the centuries, the last 2,000 plus years, that has impacted hundreds of thousands of people. You know, it became part of the canon of scripture. And what really struck me as I left you last week was that um, we just don't know what little acts we might do that are gonna have profound consequences down through the ages that we're never even gonna know anything about. This man, Epaphras, he had no idea that I would be standing here today and last week sharing his story about what he did 2,000 years ago. He was just concerned about a bunch of people, a little church that he had shared the gospel with, that he'd heard about the Savior, had shared it with people. People had come to Christ as their Savior. The little church was flourishing, and yet it was impacted by the world around them, much like ours is, and he was concerned. And so we went to Rome. The commitment in doing that, as we shared last week, was phenomenal in the day. You know, he traveled literally um, 1,180 miles by foot and by sea to share his concerns about what was going on. And then, based on what he said, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians. Now, I find that really, really interesting because um, not many of us write letters to people we don't know. But Epaphras shared enough that Paul's heart was moved to pen the letter to the Colossians. Now, <clears throat> what Paul does, as we looked last week, the letter can be basically broken out into three major categories. Derek, where are you? This is the slide I was taking talking to you about. Derek always wants a title of the sermon messages, and I never can figure out a title for the messages. <laughs> so I said, okay, Derek, slide three, write this down, and you'll have, for the next two weeks, the sermon title. So get your pen out and write it down. Or your, yeah. <laughs> here, come on up and get a good picture. <laughs> the new generation, the millennials, I'm never going to get used to them. <laughs> okay, so Today we're going to be looking at what Paul says and how to pray for your fellow believers. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about that until I really started looking at this letter about certain things that you can really pray for each other about as you think of it. Next week, we're going to look at the majesty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as he interfaces, his life interfaces with the Colossians and the, um, inter, uh, the wrong theology that was working its way into the church. They were doing with their world, we deal with our world here and all the crazy philosophies that the world puts out there for us to, to be thinking about. And so um, there's gonna be some parallels there, but there's probably no place in scripture anywhere that is as clear a presentation of who Jesus Christ is as in the book of Colossians, and we'll be looking at that next week. And then spinning off of that, then Paul says, now, if you love the Savior, welcome to the family. And our family has certain behavior patterns that we want to emulate, so we emulate our Savior so that the world may see that. And we're going to touch on that today, but he's really going to explore it, Paul is, week after next. So anyway, that's how he, he breaks it out. We also mentioned last week that in doing so, Paul draws a line. And I think this is a really important um, concept for us to get in our heads, that <clears throat> we live here, we wanna live above this line, we wanna live in the light of truth. 
and I used the example of the basketball last week and relative truth as opposed to real truth. And there's a lot of relative truth going on in the world. If I ask you how many love ice cream is absolutely their favorite dessert, how many would raise their hand? How many love ice cream is their absolute? Okay, how many love, that's a relative truth. You may say ice cream is the best dessert. How many love pie as their ultimate? John, you can't vote twice. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> okay, how many love pie? How many love ice cream and pie together? There you go. All right, see? Okay. Anyway, the point being, you know, if you go to somebody's house and they serve you chocolate cake and you love ice cream and pie, deal with it, okay? But <laughs> it's, it's, it's the relative truth of what is the best dessert. And there's a lot of relative truths. But as we illustrated last week, if I take a ball and I drop it because gravity is a true truth, nothing's going to change that. You may not feel that that should be truth, but it is. It's what holds the whole world together. And um, that's where we want to live. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the source of truth. And it's that truth is what Paul is calling us and our Savior is calling us to live there. Not with all the current philosophies that are going on. Not in the wisdom of the world. Not in man's wisdom, which is foolishness unto God, the scripture says. But in true truth. That's where he calls us to live. That's where we want to be as Oak Grove and where we stand. Put it another way, we want to be the true tr church. We don't want to just play church. There's a lot of religion out there that is playing church. And they have all kinds of programs and they have all kinds of philosophies, and they have all kinds of things to attract young people, and all these things that are going on, and they're not proclaiming Jesus Christ, and they're not living for Jesus Christ. Look at the way most churches set up, are set up. Just think about this as an example really quick. You have a head pastor, then you have an elder or a deacon board, and then you have the congregation. In other words, you have your CEO, you have your board of directors, and you have your worker bees. Okay? That's the corporate mentality. That is not the pattern in scripture. If you look at scripture, it's a multi-eldership concept. And then you have deacons to carry out other activities. Okay? We're either going to be the real church, or we're going to play church. And that is the decision that we in our hearts have to make, each one of us, am I going to live for my savior, or am I going to be religious? And that's what Paul is challenging us in this letter, to live above the line. Okay. I think when some of us went back to the Sing Conference, one of the things that impressed so many of us about their music was that it isn't about what I'm going to do for Christ. It's all about the sufficiency of our Savior. It draw, that music draws you. It, it empowers you with the concept that Christ is sufficient for every aspect of our life. He is the answer, as Paul will explain, and we will sing here in just a little bit. So the elements of um, Paul's prayer are these, and I hope you can see those. If you take the, if you're in your Bible there where Marla read for us, um, and we look at some of these real quickly, and beginning in verse um, three, he says, we, those that are with him, 
in, uh, at the prison there in Rome. We give thanks to God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for the saints. Ever thought about thanking God for the faith of your fellow believers and the difference that that has made in your lives and the lives around you? I got to confess, I had never thought of that until I started really looking at what Paul was saying here. But just giving thanks to God for one another. You know, Jerry and Carol are here with us today. During the Fountain Fire, they ministered to our family. Many did. They ministered to our family like crazy. You know, my dad was still alive, and they actually brought him down and put him up in a trailer. And poor Jerry had to rescue our neighbor's dog. Joyce said, just go get that dog. It's over in the kennel. What Jerry didn't realize, it was a St. Bernard. <laughs> and it barely fit in his car. And it was a puppy to boot, you know, so it was like everywhere. And it, it, it's got a log chain dragging this dog to get it. I mean, little thing. aren't we thankful our brothers and sisters love Jesus Christ and serve him and the differences made in our lives? Secondly, in verse 9, and this is what we're really going to focus on today, he prays that God would fill them with the knowledge of his will for them. Filled with the knowledge of his will for them. Now, what we're going to explore is what does that today is what does that mean for each one of us to be filled with the knowledge of his will for me and for joy and for each one of you. He goes on in verse 9 that they would be, um, they give them spiritual understanding that not just human wisdom, but that they would be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in their lives of how they're to live out their lives with respect to the different circumstances that they find themselves in. He goes on to pray for them to help them live for him. And why is that so important? Well, it's because our lives are a testimony of who our Savior is. You know, he has challenged us or given us the privilege to be, as the scripture says, ambassadors for Christ. Well, an ambassador shows the rest of the world what his savior or what his country's like, in our case, what our savior's like. So our lives, the way we live them out, is the testimony of Christ. And we live out that poorly as a church or as individuals, it reflects on our savior. You know, I shared last week about a church that had split because of a um, difference in um, worship style. Well, what does the world see in that? What they see is, you Christians can't get alone. Why would I want to be a part of that? You just fight. When Joy and I took our kids on a history trip back to um, Antietam, Sharpsburg, right by the Antietam battlefield, there was a church just right outside of Sharpsburg. You're going to love this. The title of the church was Battlefield Baptist. <laughs> right. That really makes you want to go there, doesn't it? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Well, obviously, they were referring to this as a Baptist church next to the battlefield of Antietam. Okay, anyway, <laughs> it just still cracks me up thinking about that. He asked the Lord to give them more knowledge of himself in verse 10, and he asked them to give them strength for endurance. And Paul says many times in the scripture, run this race, the Christian faith, as an endurance. It's not a sprint day by day by day by day. Don't you find oftentimes it's the big things you can handle well. 
It's a little minutia of trials that drive you nuts. For example, for those of us who are visually challenged, to get into the shower and reach for the shampoo, and your wife's got several bottles, and the, the print is about that big. Which one is the shampoo? You know, if I could do it, I, <laughs> I, would, I would create a bottle with shampoo in that big of letters, you know, because who gets in the shower with their glasses on to read, and they're all fogged up anyway, you know? <laughs> anyway, there's all kinds of little things like that. You're, you're hurrying to get the kids ready to go to church, and somebody knocks over the milk, and it spills all over everywhere. I mean, there's just all kinds of little things in life that can just drive you crazy. What do you do with all that kind of stuff? So Paul's praying that give them the strength to endure through the difficulties of life, the big issues and the small ones. And then finally, he asks them in verse 11 to fill them with joy and strength and thankfulness. Um, Alan, at our men's breakfast uh, last Tuesday, gave a uh, devotion about going to China but one of the things he said really struck me. He said, I, I choose to face each day in a happy mood. This is going to be a good day. And then he goes on to share that, that it, where he stayed there in the Airbnb or wherever it was, I'm not sure what it was, but he's up on like the 30-something floor, and the toilet doesn't flush. So he calls, <laughs> if I get this right, you should tell the story, but... If I get this right, he calls the manager, and the manager says, oh, yes, it, it just drains slow. No, it's not draining at all. Do you have a plunger? No plunger, no plunger. It just drains slow, and he leaves. Well, it drains slow enough that for a whole week, Alan didn't have a toilet on the 30-something floor. You know. <laughs> but <laughs> how many of you girls could handle that? <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, so Alan chose to be thankful, you know. It's a choice. It's a choice of how we deal with life. And, but there are things that drag us down. Life can be hard. Life can be really difficult. And Paul is praying, and I think we should pray for one another, that help that family that's going through that go through it with joy and strength and thankfulness. That's really important. And we need to be, you know, we talk about in Ephesians, encourage one another to love and good deeds. We need encouragement. We get tired. We get discouraged. And we need to build one another up. A little note of thanks goes a long, long ways. Well, we want to focus today on one, as one aspect of this, <clears throat> and that's in verse 9 that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. When I got to that verse a number of years ago and even studying for this, it begs the question, is his will the same for all of us? Well, as you see on the screen, yes, in part, in that it is God's will that all would be saved. Christ went to the cross for all of us. Not all of us choose to accept the Lord is their savior. But it's still his desire 
that all would be saved. But in some ways, no. It's not the same for all of us. Consider this. I'm going to use Alan again. Alan's a pilot. It was God's will that he would be a pilot. In 1860, it was not God's will that anybody would be a pilot. Right? Circumstances, all kinds of things change. And so the people in the 1860s, it was God's will that they were going to go through other things like the American Civil War in our country. In my generation, it was God's will that we would go through Vietnam and on down the line. So time affects God's will for individual people. But there's other things that do as well. We simply are not the same. And so his will is dependent on who we are for us. And it's really important we understand that. And that's what we're gonna, what Paul is focusing on in what he's saying here, that we would understand what the will of God is. It takes understanding to be where God wants you to be. So consider, some of us are male and some of us aren't. In Genesis, and we know this verse well, Genesis um, 126, he said, and then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky and over the cattle and all over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God said, and, and pardon me, and God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the, what that says to us is that the image of God is manifested in two different ways one in the maleness and one in the femaleness. And you don't have to be around the other gender very long to realize they're different, very different, physically different, emotionally different, spiritually, hopefully the same, but the way they approach life is different. Us guys, you know, we would, we would kind of say, you know, three words is sufficient. You know, the girls would say, why use three words when 22 are efficient. There's a difference there. You know, there's an old saying that man is the headlines and women are the fine print. You know, I tell Joy when she's talking to men and she has to interface through our business with men, I say, don't give them all the details. When they ask you a question, give them the salient main point. Be constructive and concise. If they want more information, they'll ask you. A girl wants to give them 23 years of background information that leads up to this point. We're just wired different. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just that's why girls love to talk on the phone and most guys can sum it up in about three seconds. We approach life differently. One of the things I had to learn when I got married, because being raised mostly around all men and no girls, except my mom, was that when I married Joy, she didn't necessarily want me to fix it she wanted me to understand how she felt about it. Who cares? Let's get it fixed. No, 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 no. I need you to understand how I feel about it. I need you to be there. And that's part of the, and you girls are laughing and some of you guys are going, oh yeah, you're so right. Okay? It's true, isn't it? 
How many would agree with that? Come on, be honest. Tell me, yeah, okay. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> We're different. There's maleness, there's femaleness, and it is a wonderful thing. And we've told our kids as they were approaching marriage, one of the things that Joy and I realized is you think about, if you think about a ship, and we're a ship, we're headed that way. Joy's radar scans this horizon. Mine scans this. You put the two together and you got the complete picture. People, so many get divorced because of irreconcilable differences. Well, yeah, as I've shared in the past, she's a female and I'm a male. That's an irreconcilable difference. But it's a strength. It's not a weakness. It's a strength that she sees it differently. And it's a strength that I see it differently. And the artistry comes in and loving one another to listen, to try to understand the other side. Male and female, he created us. And then he said, of all the parts of creation, that is very good. That is very good. Not just good, that's very good. So rejoice in that. Okay, so that's the first major thing we're going to look at. And God had created, there's the verse, created him in own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The second thing, some of us are children. We all were children at one time. Is God's will the same for a child as it is for me? Well, in some areas, yes, but in a lot of areas, no. More specifically, Take a look at this. He gives very direct instructions to children. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you would live long on the earth. That is the only commandment with a promise, okay? Now, look at what it says there. Children, obey your parents. That necessitates something, parents. That necessitates there's been a training that will lead to obedience. For example, a young mother tells their child to go in and make their bed. And so the young child goes in and he makes his bed. He comes back, his mom goes in to check, and the bed's just, I mean, the kid just threw the stuff up there. Covers her ears up there. The stuffed animals are all over her. The pillows aren't on the bed. And she gets angry at him, probably at him. He gets, she gets angry at him because he didn't make his bed. You know where the fault really lies? She didn't train him how to make the bed. She's expecting something without the training. If there's going to be obedience in anything in a child, there has to be training first. Otherwise, you're expecting the impossible. When we were up visiting Mike and Annie, I witnessed something that, that is so clear on this. Right across the street, there's a, another young couple, and they've got two darling girls, and they, they all, kids all play together up there. And I was watching this, and the girls are outside, and they each got a rake, and just fall, and they're raking leaves. Well, they're going through a lot of motion, but there's not a lot of leaves getting into a pile. It's more like there's leaves, more leaves getting scattered here and there. And then mom opens the sliding window and she yells out to her kids, you hurry up and get those leaves raked because dad's going to be home and that was your job to get done. And she shuts, she shuts the door, the window. So the kids kind of look at mom and they kind of, well, 
they never got the leaves raked to any degree of satisfaction for anybody. And the problem was, first, they didn't know how to work. Nobody ever trained them how to work through a project, much less how to rake in such a way you're efficient. Whose fault is it that didn't get raked? It's the parents, okay? So if, there's gonna, if a child is gonna obey, he's gotta be taught what to obey too, and it rests on the parents. And we are sadly lacking in that in our country. Okay, so the next thing we wanna look at, we move from there to these guys, the wonderful years of young adulthood, young people. Okay, what, a, what an incredible, fun, energetic time as we're learning who we are. What a confusing time as all the hormones kicks in and all of a sudden you realize, holy cow, there is another gender out there and they look different and they act different and that's really interesting kind of thing. Well, the Lord has some very specific things to say to young people and most of our young people aren't with us right now, but consider what he says here in Timothy. Don't look anyone look down on your youth, on you because you're young, but set an example, set an example for the believers in speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. How are they going to do that, parents, if they haven't been taught how to do that, if that has not been modeled for them how to do that. It can't be expected. Unfortunately, so many of our fathers now are not, the kids aren't growing up on a farm where they see dads and working with them all the time, or their moms are off working, they don't have the opportunity to see what moms do all the time. Our kids go off to school and then they go off to sports or they go off to someplace else, and there isn't an opportunity for them to learn. So who do they learn from? You know, Chuck Swindoll, I think it was, it might have been Howard Hendricks, I don't know, a long time ago said something that really struck Joy and I when we were raising our kids. He said, someone's gonna brainwash your kid. It probably should be you as a believer. It should be you. But we send them off to others and they brainwash them and teach them the things that are regrettable. If, if you're going to, parents, if you're gonna enjoy your kids when they're this age, it starts now when they're young. If you wanna enjoy your teenagers, train them now to be civilized. I know as Howard Hendricks said this, he said, you only have about 13 years to civilize a heathen because we're all born with a sense of sinful nature. But this is what the instruction that our Lord and Savior would say to our, our young people. Be an example to the old people in your conduct, how you behave, do you have good manners? Do you have pleasant speech? Do you know how to interact with adults in a gracious and polite manner? Can you be a testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ as you go off to college and everybody is saying the progressive ideals now they're in colleges and the evolutionary theories and all those things, the philosophies that are floating around in colleges. Can you stand the test of being there? And can you live your life when you're in the dorm with purity when all your dorm mates are not? 
See? And that's what he's called us to. But it, again, it goes back to the training. Back to the training. Well, as we move on, some of us are single. Now, we may be married and still be single, spiritually, emotionally. Some of us are single by choice. Some of us are single not by choice, but that's kind of the state that God has us in. Um, who can imagine what this young lady is actually thinking of? Maybe she's thinking of a lost love or a love desired or a relationship gone bad, or she could be thinking of a happy time, a wonderful time. But the point why I chose the picture, there are times in all of our lives when we're single, we're alone. Even though we may be married, the relationship isn't maybe what it would be or the needs aren't filled or something like that. So what does the Lord say to us when we're single? Well, I found this verse here, Philippians 4, 6. It's a common one, obviously. But be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So whatever the area is, I think, that what the Lord is saying to us, wherever we find ourselves single, and it's not by choice, those are the time to get before the Lord and say, with thanksgiving, first, Lord, I recognize you're a sovereign God, and you have me in this position of being single. So thank you for that. But it's not my desire. I would desire somebody to share life with, spiritually, emotionally, whatever. And sometimes it's good for those of us that love the Lord to recognize that in others' lives and come alongside and say, let me, be, let me be with you. You know, when we went back to the Sing Conference, Johnny Erickson taught us, spoke twice to us. But one of the times she spoke, she said something, and she speaks from the podium of suffering. Those of you that know Johnny's story, she's been a paraplegic, quadriplegic, quadriplegic for 50 years this year through a diving accident. So she speaks from a podium of suffering in pain all the time. And she basically said, you know, when somebody's suffering, don't take your Christian verses and lay it on them. Just go be there because they feel alone. Just go and be there. Put your arms around them and be there. Walk with them. Don't let them be alone. That resonates when somebody that knows suffering like that gives you that kind of instruction, it resonates in your heart and says, you know, how many of us say, I don't know what to say to that person? And Johnny would say to us, don't say anything. Just go. Just be there. Come alongside. This week, a number of us lost a good friend killed in an automobile wreck. You know, like so many of us, got up that day, pulled his boots on, went about his business, and then and now he lives, leaves behind a wonderful gal, his wife, a widow, and family. What do we say? We just go and be there, come alongside. And that's, that is the answer for loneliness. Well, the other side of that equation is some of us are married. Ah, oh, the happy couple. <laughs> How long will it be before they have their first fight? <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Yeah, what an interesting, you know, you bring two totally opposite people together from different families, different gender, you bring them all together and um, you expect it to work it out. Well, one of the verses, and I did put on the slides, it occurred to me later, um, <clears throat> one of the verses really helped Joy and I is that Ephesians verse that says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that brings edification and, and I can't quote it all, but is, 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 the, is fitting for the moment. You know, speaking kindly to one another when you're having difficulties is a great thing. But we're meant to share life together and become one together. And there's a really important reason behind that where Paul, or I'm sorry, where the Lord brings two very different beings together to be one. And it, it shakes out in Ephesians 5.22 as his will for us. And this verse wrinkles people sometimes, but the truth behind it is powerful if we're going to be the true, true, the true church. What Paul says here is, wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. And that means like in everything, okay? For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you think about what God's intent is, is that the marriage relationship is a, is a model of the relationship between our Savior Jesus and we, the church. He calls us the bride of Christ. So we as the church would be like the bride and Christ is the head. And as we conform our lives, as we become ambassadors for Christ, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll be subject to what I've called you to. Not that I'm an God uh, that it just desires control and you know I don't care what you think. He desires that because he's wired us to live that way for our good. And we in our sinful natures, our rebellious state, like Satan, think we know what is best. But God says, if you will submit to me, I know what is best, and it will go well for you. It will go well for you, and you'll live in peace, and you'll capture a peace that surpasses all understanding regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in. And the world cannot offer us that. So this is a, this is a model here. And so when you see a Christian couple that has this figured out, and gals, I know it isn't easy because part of the curse on you from Genesis is your desire shall be for your husband. What that means, you want to control. And you know it's true. But if you, you supplant that and you submit to your husband, that reflects the love of the Savior to the world by the way we live out our lives as couples. And it's a challenge, but we can do that. <clears throat> well, there's so much, you know, if you want to know as a married couple, you can go through the scriptures and dig these kernels of truth out. I obviously don't have the time this morning to do that, but you can dig those kernels of truth out, how they apply to you, apply it to your life. You will not only glorify your savior to the world, but it will go well for you. And then, 
some of us are married and raising families. A lot of us in this church, you know, it's sort of like when you dismiss the children here, it's like the exodus. You know, they leave and they go. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of things in the scriptures that pertain to raising children. And I've touched on some of them, but here's a, here's a couple more right here. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The key word is train, not just tell, but train, okay? My, do- my dad, part of his hobby was training dogs. And so I watched my, do- my dad do that, and it gave me a lot of insights in how to train animals, but also how to train my children. Because training takes patience, and it takes repetitiveness, and it takes patience of working with them until they get it. When um, some of you have been to our Civil War reenactments, you know we have uh, got our horses in battles, and a, one of the most common questions we get in that is, how do you train a horse to go into gunfire and cannons and people running around and screaming and flags r- flying and drums beating and bugles going off? How do you train a horse to do that? The way you do it is you put him next to an experienced horse and you let him walk through it with that experienced horse and he learns from that other horse that it's okay and it's safe. I share that with you to share this, that training isn't telling, it's modeling. It's modeling. You model the behavior you want. The barbershop we used to go to when I was a little boy was just up the street about two doors from a bar. And in the bar window, there was a sign, and it said, um, no people under 20, no persons under 21 allowed in this building. So I walked up through there, and one day I, I asked Dad, why? And he explained why. And I, okay, that was fine. And I don't know, another time, I don't know, two or three months, four months later, we walked by that sign again. And I asked my dad, do you ever go in places like that? And he said, no. That's all he said, no. And I thought about that. So the next time I walked up there, I asked my dad, Dad, you said you never go in places like that. Why? Now, you're probably thinking what my dad said. But you know what he really said? Because I can't take you. That's what he said. I've never forgotten it. He was modeling behavior. He wasn't telling me don't go in there because of this, you know, den of sin and all the stuff that alcohol does to people. He wasn't saying any of that. He was saying, I don't go because you're more important and I want to model for you, you know. You want to teach a child how to work, how to be diligent so they're diligent in school. And do they? Let them come alongside you and don't just let them play out there in the field. Let them get involved in the work you're doing. It's going to take more time, but let them do it. Remember the old uh, Tom Sawyer painting the white fence thing, you know, and Tom's painting the fence? Well, Tom had never learned to work, but he'd he'd learned to be persuasive or um, what's a good word? (laughs) He learned to get others to do his work. Well, he missed the point. And Mark Twain, in writing that story, illustrates the point that Tom didn't know how to work. He was more concerned in getting out of work, you know. We gotta model things. Training is modeling. Training is patience. Training takes time. 
and we get in such a big hurry in our modern society, we want to rush through everything to get to something, and we miss the very thing that's important. And we grandparents, what a great opportunity for us to give our kids a break and spend some of that time modeling to our grandchildren and training them. Little things, how do you set the table right? Where do you place the knives? Where do you place the forks and why? Not just thrown on the table. Where do you place all the silverware, all the plates, all the utensils? How do you wash a dish well? Not just done. How do you work through that thing? How do you make your bed well, correctly, so it's neat? How do you take care of your room? My son-in-law, Mike, as you know, is a Bible professor at Great Northern. He was asked to give a talk recently out to a Christian high school, and he chose to speak on work. And he said something that was really intriguing, and he said this. He said, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to till it and take care of it. He didn't tell him to take care of the whole world. He told him to take care of that spot. So when we train children or we train ourse our ourselves, where is our garden? It may be for a young child, his garden is just his bedroom. God has called him to take care of it. It may be his toy box. It may be whatever, okay? But that's his garden that God's called him to care for and it becomes our responsibility to help them grasp that concept through time. Another thing that goes with this is fathers don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It's really easy, and I've seen this, I've done it, where the, where the parenting concept doesn't work, but yet we still do it because that's the only thing we understand. And um, you're, you're gonna think I'm a brute for sharing this part of the story, but you know we don't have air conditioning up, up at our place because we've got the creek that comes down there, through there, and so the way we cool our house is we open up at night, cool it down, then we shut everything during the day and it stays nice and cool. Well, our daughter Annie could not get it through her head. Why? She couldn't just leave the doors open. And we spanked that girl, and we lectured that girl, and we I don't know what else we did. We probably threatened her with death. I don't know what. But she just could not get it in her head that it's important that she shut the door for the sake of the rest of the family being comfortable. So one day, in exasperation, I said, and it's hot. It's about 100 degrees up home, which is hot. Annie, get your coat. And I grabbed a lawn chair, and I took her right out on the driveway, right in the sun. I said, plant yourself in that chair and don't move. And she's got her coat on. And pretty soon, she's hot. So I went inside and I made her an orange Julius, about that big. And after about, I don't know, it didn't take too long, I could see that she was turning several shades of red. I thought, if somebody drives in the driveway right now, <laughs> they're gonna think this is child abuse. And it probably was. <laughs> so I went out, I got her and I brought her in. And she was, <sighs> and I sat her down, I took a, a cold wash rag and I washed her down. I set her down, I gave her that. I said, do you does it feel good in here, Annie? Said, yeah. Do you understand why we want the door shut? Yeah, I do. That girl, from that time on, anybody in our family that leaves the door open, shut the door! <laughs> uh, 
But I provoked her before that because I didn't understand how to get through to her. You gotta know who you're training. And each kid you have, each grandchild you have has a different personality. And, the, and the, why do we need wisdom? We gotta figure that out, how to train effectively. All right, there's just so much in God's word. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7. Note carefully what this says. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk and by the, by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, throughout your whole life. But it's not just talking, it's modeling. You know, if you want your child to be a responsible adult and sometime maybe lead others to the Lord and share the gospel, you've got to do it yourself. If you want them to lead home Bible studies, you better be in a home Bible study. When our kids were little, the cows hosted our home Bible study and we brought our kids. And Grammy in particular, she would take those kids and bundle them up in her arms and everything like that, but they would sit through that stuff. When we were up at Multnomah, one of the professors said, if you're gonna do a home Bible study, open it up to the kids. Don't, put, don't leave them with a the babysitter, you bring them. They'll absorb God's word, but more importantly, they know that they're there doing what you're doing and you're modeling for them what you're doing. It's critically important. My dad took me everywhere he could. I had no doubt in my mind the way men are supposed to live, as did my uncles, okay? It's the modeling. And, and teach the principles as you go. How do you sharpen a knife the right way or an ax? How do you coil a rope the right way or an um, extension cord? How do you do all that kind of stuff? Unless dad or mom, how do you sweep and clean a house well or the bathroom well? Some of you knew Ted and Jane Hutchinson's from years back. They went up to Seattle and they bought a track home. And we, when our kids were little, we talked about these principles. We, our kids were gonna grow up on a ranch. They were gonna grow up in the suburbs. So we had all this outdoor activity. They didn't. You know what they did? They taught their kids how to lay carpet, how to paint, how to do plumbing, how to fix the roofs. They did it all themselves. They didn't hire anything out. They taught their kids how to do it. And subsequently, Daniel, their, their youngest, their son, worked his way through seminary laying carpet and linoleum. Why? His dad had taught him. See, you can do it wherever you live. You just have to have the will to teach them diligently. It's what God's called us to do. And then there's some of us. The golden years. Let me tell you something. They ain't that golden. You know, I have assisted living. I got glasses, I got hearing aids, I got, you know, fillings in my teeth. I'm pretty healthy from here down. <laughs> you know, it's, and my brain doesn't work very good anymore. You know, but there is some wisdom that comes with living if you make it this, this far. But look, look what the Lord says to those of us that are here. He starts off with the men and says, men, older men are to be temperate, temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Okay, and again, that's modeling. You know, how are you gonna live out your life? And what 
is gonna be seen by others that are watching your life. And then gals, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. You know why he says that? Because that's your tendency, okay? Not malicious gossips. Don't go there. Don't be talking about other people. Not enslaved to much wine, but teaching, teaching what is good by your behavior. You've lived it. You've seen the things that don't work. Don't pass that on. Pass on the things that work. And look whether he follows that up. So that they may be that they may encourage the young women to what? Love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Notice the order, girls, of this. He says, love your husbands first, love your children second. The tendency oftentimes is when a new mom has a baby, all the attention gets focused on that baby and stays there for a lot of years. And there's been more than one marriage that has fallen apart because all of a sudden the husband doesn't feel cared for anymore. Okay. The first call is the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is like the axle on a spoked wheel and all the other spokes. If that axle, the relationship between the husband and wife fractures, the whole wheel falls apart. But if that's solid, even though a spoke may be splintered, it can be fixed and the wheel won't fall apart. Think about that though. The relationship and Satan desires to destroy families and he'll attack right there with good things like children. But it also models for the children, they aren't the center of the universe. And it's really important for all of us to recognize that we are not the center of the universe. Christ is. Jesus Christ is, not us, not our kids. But if they think they've just the cat's meow when they're a little kid and they keep growing into that, they're gonna be a bunch of spoiled brats when they become adults. And we've got enough of the world with like that. And Christ has not called us to that. So the order here is really, really important. But you gals have an amazing opportunity, you that are in these latter years, to be sensible and pure and encourage those girls to be workers at home. Because if they're raising children, that's the first mission field. God gave children to families to raise for him. That is the priority. Not running off to Timbuktu to witness to the heathen. You've already got the heathen right in your own home. Okay? Lead them to Christ by your actions and what you say. Teach them. And they're resistant, aren't they? They are resistant because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction is what is taken to drive it out. It may be sitting your daughter out in the sun. It may be a spanking. It may be just telling them for the 2600th time in the last hour. And then being subject to the husbands, we've already talked about that, so that the word would not be dishonored. Okay. There's so much in scripture that wherever you are in your life of one of these um, things we've illustrated today, you can find more in the scripture to help you through that. So a final thought, and it comes from Timothy. How are we gonna live wisely? 
Study to show yourselves approved, workmen under God that need not be ashamed. There's no other way except to dig in God's word and ask him to show you, for you, what he wants from you. And that we won't be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shame the profane and the vain babblings of the world and all their philosophies, because it's, it's the foolishness of man, it's not the wisdom of God for they will increase into more ungodliness. You know, a lot of us take the paper. There's a lot of foolishness in the paper. You spend time in God's word. You can pull out. It, it's like looking at a counterfeit bill. You can say, oh, that's nuts, that's nuts, that's nuts. Well, okay, there's a kernel of truth there. Okay, so. And then finally, I'll leave you with this. The bottom line of all, love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. As John says, love one another. You know, encourage one another and be there for one another. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, who are all these people that are helping you? Well, they're from my church. The world's not doing that. You know, and this, our little body here is really good at loving one another and caring for one another. And the world's watching us do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words, these encouraging words. And Father, as we just sing our praises to you, may our hearts just be overfilled, overflowing with gratitude hmm, for sharing who you are with us and calling us into your family. Thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.